0: Two and a half admins, episode 163. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. How Google Authenticator made one company's network breach much, much worse. Short version,
1: by dumping all all of the secrets on your Google account, where it now becomes instead of, you know, two-factor authentication, half a factor authentication.
2: So Retool, which helps customers secure their software development platforms, made the criticism on Wednesday in a post disclosing that a compromise of its customer support system led to 27 of its customers, all in the cryptocurrency industry, being attacked. They say the attack started when a Retool employee clicked on a link in a text message purporting to come from a member of the company's IT team. Because that's plain phishing, so I don't know how they're going to blame Google for that. But they say it warned that the employee would be unable to participate in the company's open enrollment for health coverage until an account issue was fixed. The text arrived while Retool was in the process of moving login platforms to Okta, which is a very large single sign-on platform. Most of the targeted employees took no action, but one logged in to the linked site and based on the wording of the poorly written disclosure, presumably provided both a password and the temporary one-time password from their Google Authenticator. Now,
1: we do need to address a serious technical error in what you've said so far, Alan. It can't be phishing, it was a text message. That's smishing.
0: (laughs) Sure. But they claimed all sorts of stuff like deep faked voices on the phone and detailed knowledge of the floor plan of the office and stuff. I don't know how much of that we can believe, but I think the important thing is that there's no debating The fact that Google's Authenticator app does by default sync via the cloud. Not just sync via the cloud, but in a
1: way that if anybody compromises your Google account, they've compromised your Google Authenticator along with it, which is not a necessary component of syncing to the cloud for recovery and backup purposes. They very easily could have set that up to sync end-to-end encrypted, where, you know, without the device or a password to unlock the whole thing, it's no good to anybody. So somebody compromises your Google account and they have a bunch of useless blobs. But that's not what they
2: did. It can be a bit of a catch-22 of, like, how do you have two-factor authentication for recovering your two-factor authentication? <laughs> you know, it can be a real pain to switch phones and and have to re-enroll in too many of these authenticators, but... As with all security, it's always a a trade-off between convenience and security. And Google has decided to move the slider way off to the convenience side without asking anybody or without giving you any options. So yes, your Google account owns everything. Don't let your Google account get compromised. I want to move back again to
1: uh, something Joe said earlier about, you know, the all the claims of deep fakes and like, you know, AI voice mimicking and, you know, this and that and the other with uh, the calls in to social engineer these folks. It reminds me of when I was attending Navy boot camp in Orlando, Florida. Anytime somebody got in a bar fight with like kids fresh out of boot camp and didn't do too well, they always got jumped by 10 seals every time. (laughs) It's never just, I picked on the wrong 18-year-old kid that just got out of boot camp. No, it's like a whole squad of seals. (laughs) Some things never change. Moving back to the the actual meat of the story, though, this is also kind of another example of a pattern that I try to make people aware of pretty frequently, which is you have to be careful to choose security solutions based on your own threat model and realize what the model of the provider that you're using is, because they won't always match up. One of the most famous examples of this was Wired reporter Matt Hannan who owned the Twitter handle at MAT back when Twitter was, you know, like hot and people wanted to be there. Three-letter Twitter handles were just as hard to find as three-letter domain names, and... Hanen refused to sell his for, I think it was $10,000 to some rando who uh, who got hold of him saying he wanted at Matt. And the rando attacker then just went through a string of social engineering exercises that began with Apple iCloud. And, you know, I was very irritated at the time because everybody's like, oh, you know, poor Matt, he did nothing wrong. And Matt, if you're listening, buddy, I, I'm, I'm not trying to jump on you too hard, But I always thought it was a mistake to say you did nothing wrong because what you did is you secured something that was worth an easy five figures using a service that's targeted at Joe and Jane six packs sitting at home who absolutely expect to be able to call up to Apple and say, oh, I can't get into my account. And, you know, with a little bit of sobbing, be allowed back in, which is exactly what happened. Now Google is doing the same thing and Google's arguments are exactly the ones that I said that Apple would make about their security policies. Google is saying, well, look, we're trying to do the best thing for the most people. And that means, you know, we have the automatic syncing because people have trouble managing it when they change devices with their TOTP. So this is the best answer for the most people. And that's why this makes sense. Now, that's not the worst argument that Google could make, honestly. Because, yes, they do have literally millions of customers who aren't that sophisticated and do need that level of handholding, and this is a blessing for them. The real argument to be made here is much like the one I made about, you know, Matt screw up with with his Twitter handle back in the day, which is, look, you should have realized the value of the thing that you're securing and realized I should not be securing this with a service that is targeted to Joe and Jane six-pack when I actually have in this case, almost certainly millions of dollars worth of secrets to protect.
2: Yeah, and there's two other sides to this. One, I remember with Matt, that because they compromised iCloud, they were able to remotely erase his iPhone and and laptop because they used the lost my phone thing (laughs) and basically remotely destroyed his computers in addition to taking over everything. But the interesting one here is the ultimate targets of this were a bunch of customers in the cryptocurrency industry, which I'm laughing at, but separately, they trusted this retool company to provide their software development platform and they were outsourcing their authentication to Okta and so on. And at some point, if you're one of the cryptocurrency customers here, you don't even know what security provider your provider is getting provided from. And it gets so many steps away that how do you know what your threat vector is, when your threat vector is, oh, this company that I hired hired another company which didn't secure its stuff well enough, and they got attacked. In other words,
1: you're once again advocating for S bomb, but this time, it's security bill of materials.
2: Honestly, for that one, I think maybe you should consider an authenticator thing hosted by somebody you're paying directly to do a good job. That doesn't guarantee they will do a good job. But you'll have a bit more visibility and a bit more recourse when they don't than when it's gets all these layers away from you. And, you know, people should also maybe not use the same Google authenticator that they do for their Facebook account for their work stuff. That's why you want authenticators tied to work stuff as, you know, a separate app on your phone or a separate profile so that if your Google account gets compromised, your personal Google account get compromised, it shouldn't compromise your job's computer systems. And vice versa, if the computer systems at your job get compromised, they can't take over your whole life with your gmail account there's also the approach of uh, don't treat your first factor
1: like an inconvenient throwaway to begin with, and it won't matter as much when you lose control of the second in my case, I absolutely use two factor for all kinds of things, whether i 'm actively required to or not because it's it 's absolutely a best practice but there aren't many cases in which I would be worried about that aspect of it because my real security is the fact that I use unique passwords for everything. So in order for you to gain my password, you have to have already owned the thing the password goes to. If everybody did that, our entire species security profile would be immeasurably improved. It's probably worth mentioning also, you know, not everybody out there is a retool that should be specifically paying some money for a, you know, more secured product and yada, yada, yada. So what do you do if you're just some guy, gal, or non-binary other who is sitting around wondering, okay, well, I don't like what Google did with their Authenticator and I don't like the way they're talking about it. I need something different. What do I do? And in that case, I would recommend Authy, which is not a Google product, will work everywhere that Google Authenticator works, will not sync your stuff off to Google. And even though it does have a Cloud Sync option, it is off by default. And if you use it, it's E2EE. So even if somebody manages to grab the binaries on the other side of that Cloud Sync, without a password that you've used to secure them, it will do that attacker no good. And in that case, you would consider the 2FA. The first factor is the attacker has to own the cloud service that it's synced to to begin with. That's your first factor. And your second factor is the password that you use for the end-to-end encryption. Which was unique. You didn't use it for anything else, right? Yes, for the love of God. If nothing else is unique in your passwords, please make the password that protects the rest of your secrets, whether it be a key pass vault or, you know, authy end-to-end encryption, whatever. That's got to be unique and difficult and strong. And I know all of our regular listeners are probably more than sick and tired of hearing me say this by now, but... For anyone who hasn't heard me say it yet, remember, strong and cryptographically difficult does not have to mean 16 characters of line noise that you can't type, let alone remember. Use diceware-style passphrases. Pick up the EFF word list, grab enough random words out of it for the level of entropy you want. I would typically recommend at least five words for your passphrase, and uh, you will have just as much entropy as you do with an awful lot of line noise. One of our late-night Linux family's hosts, uh, Amleth, uh, I was talking with him about this stuff the other day, and um, he mentioned that he typically uses seven-word passphrases. And I, I want to say that um, you're looking at, I think it's 16 characters worth of line noise before you achieve the same entropy as his seven-word passphrases. And I promise you can absolutely both remember and type seven relatively short dictionary words a whole lot better than 16 characters of line noise.
0: Let's do some feedback then. Chris writes, I was hoping to get a bit of a rundown on what Alan does with his TV boxes that he talks about from time to time. Can you watch all the streaming services without much fuss? Do you have some kind of kiosk mode that you use or something? What do you do to control it from the couch and how well do they hold up? Do you have any struggles with that setup? So it's pretty basic. It's
2: just a normal computer running a regular operating system, mostly with Firefox as the browser. For YouTube, I have a browser extension that when going to YouTube lies about the user agent and pretends to be a Samsung smart TV. So I get youtube.com slash TV, which gives me an interface for YouTube that you can navigate like with just arrow keys or whatever. So to control it from the couch, I put a link to a $25 remote I bought off Amazon that has like arrow buttons and uh you can control the mouse like, a, like with a Roku remote kind of thing like a accelerometer based thing so that you can easily point and click on stuff and it gives you right click and left click and on the back there's a keyboard for typing in addresses and stuff. My biggest pet peeve with it is that it has
0: alt and alt and all the other keys you might need but no tab key so you can't do <laughs> alt-tab. Surely you can remap that in Windows because you you, uh, you kind of glossed over that part. A uh, regular operating system you say. With what I'm doing it doesn't have to be Windows. Mine
2: happens to be because my wife has to use it too, and so on, and so it being Windows is just easier. So it's Firefox, and we have you know Amazon Prime, uh, Nebula, Curiosity Stream, and a bunch of other streaming services, and so on that way. And then I also use the home theater version of Plex, which again provides an interface that works very well with the remote, where it's just the arrow keys do almost everything. It's like arrow keys, enter, and escape control pretty much everything, and it controls the volume and stuff, and it works very
0: nicely. So it's just a regular installation of Windows in this case, but it could as well be Linux, potentially, just on x86 hardware. Yeah. It's not going to be Linux on Alan's hardware. (laughs) No, well, it could be FreeBSD, potentially, but then, you know, he wouldn't have sound or something on network. Sound and network would be fine on it, actually. The video might not play back as smoothly. I was just about to say, how
2: about the video for your television application, Alan? (laughs) It's Intel integrated graphics, so it... The
0: driver's there. Yeah, good luck getting QuickSync and stuff working.
2: Well, actually, the biggest problem, I think, would actually be possibly the DRM bits from the browser not wanting to work because mm-hmm. the binaries are only provided for Linux, Windows, and Mac. And now that you've mentioned that, let's
1: talk about an alternative approach, the way that I handle this stuff. Uh, I have also got a TV box, but I went a different direction, Alan. My TV box is Kodi, which that's an offshoot of the, uh, the old Xbox Media Center, which I have loved dearly for... 20 years now. Kodi is great if you have got a bunch of, uh, let's just say, viewable Linux ISOs on a server somewhere in your house. You can point Kodi at it. You can point it there over Windows Networking, or NFS, or SSHFS, which is actually what I use. And it it all just works. There's nothing funky going on. Kodi doesn't need to transcode anything, unlike most solutions like Plex. Uh, rather than having one or two preferred codecs, and if it encounters something else that'll try to transcode on the fly, it just plays whatever it finds using the appropriate codec to play it, which I have found to greatly simplify a lot of things that otherwise were annoying me when I tried to use things like Plex. Now, that's just for my uh, viewable Linux ISOs, of course. For streaming services, I actually don't try to do that on my own hardware at all. I just bought a Roku. It's like 70 bucks. does 4K, the most consumer-friendly possible interface, does every streaming service you can think of, And unlike a do-it-yourself box, you know, when some jerko at one of these services decides, let me go ahead and turn on the uh, device path verification for Widevine and immediately wipes out your Linux boxes and even your Windows boxes and all kinds of things, it ain't touching that Roku because they they know that there are millions of Joe and Jane six-packs using those Rokus and they do not want to interrupt those folks' service, so it just keeps right on working. Now it also can tie into some of the open source stuff that Alan was talking about. Alan makes great use out of the Plex media server, and guess what? I access that from my Roku. There's a Plex app for it, and I just installed that. And uh, Alan gave me access to his thing, and uh, I can watch Alan's viewable free BSD ISOs.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, so I did a similar thing for my mother. I got her a new smart TV for the living room, and she loved it, and it was one of the ones off Amazon that had a Roku built into it. It was just a Roku smart TV. But she has a second TV in her bedroom that was just slaved off her cable box. But suddenly, she wanted all this stuff she was used to on Roku now on the TV in her bedroom. So I bought a Roku Express, which is basically like a HDMI dongle that just plugs in. It's $40 Canadian, which is probably only like $30 U.S., And it's basically a little dongle that goes into the TV and a remote. And it lets her use Plex, Amazon, YouTube, whatever, all the Roku apps you can think of. Turns any dumb TV into a smart TV for $30. 40 bucks Canadian is $30 US
1: plus two bottles of maple syrup for anybody who's wondering.
0: (laughs) But can a Roku box talk to a Samba share?
1: Absolutely not. Right. So that's why you need that second box then. That's why I've got the Kodi box whenever i want to watch my linux isos then i just change my tv input over to the uh, to the cody box and do those things from there it's the ideal tool for that and the roku is the ideal tool for the streaming stuff so rather than try to force everything you know down one single path i just use what
0: works best for the things that i want to do you're saying that you're Unix philosophying your TV watching.
1: That is exactly correct. I mean, what would you expect from a guy who has just coined both the terms viewable Linux ISO and viewable FreeBSD ISO <laughs> in the space of 10 minutes?
2: <laughs> yeah, in the case of my mom, uh, you know, there is no Plex server at her house, just the one at my house. So it just means uh, a service that used to just be part of my home lab is now a production service because the rest of my family depends on it now. Janice and I
1: talk about watching Canadian TV when we're thinking about watching something from your Plex server. (laughs) (laughs) I may have taken a couple of liberties when I described the setup to her. I I actually told her it's Alan's FreeBSD laptop in his basement. It was just funnier (laughs) that way.
2: It's close, (laughs) other
1: than the fact that it's a 40-core server. It also gave you more credit than you deserve, so
0: you know, I I feel kind of good about that. Works for me. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Collide, and Collide has some big news. If you're an Okta user, they can get your entire fleet to 100% compliance. If a device isn't compliant, the user can't log into your cloud apps until they fix the problem. It's that simple. Collide patches one of the major holes in zero-trust architecture, device compliance. Without Collide, IT struggles to solve basic problems like keeping everyone's OS and browser up to date. Unsecure devices might be logging into your company's apps because there's nothing to stop them. Collide is a simple device trust solution that enforces compliance as part of authentication and it's built to work seamlessly with Okta. The moment Collide's agent detects a problem, it alerts the user and gives them instructions to fix it. If they don't fix the problem within a set time, they're blocked. Collide's method means fewer support tickets, less frustration, and most importantly, 100% fleet compliance. So visit collide.com 25A to learn more or book a demo. That's K-O-L. IDE.com slash two five A. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to two dot five dot com slash support. And remember that for various amounts on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed of either just this show or all the shows in the late night Linux family. And if you want to send any questions for Jim Nallen or your feedback, you can email show at two dot five admins dot com. Majid says, I have a question about external hard drives. I'm in the market for a new one, and I'm having trouble deciding between Seagate and Western Digital. I've had a bad experience with Seagate's four terabyte backup plus, which failed on me after a short period of use. I know this is a portable drive and not a 3.5 inch desktop drive, but I'm worried that Seagate's quality might be subpar across their product line. I've heard Jim talk about the reliability issues with Western Digital drives in the past, but I'm not sure if they've improved since then. As someone who's been in the industry for a while, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the current state of external hard drives and which brand you would recommend. I'd recommend not buying an external hard
2: drive. <laughs> Get an enclosure and put a real hard drive in it. Yes, that is exactly correct. That that
1: is we, And we probably should lead with that. That's the first thing. And... The reason that we would recommend buying a caddy and buying a hard drive and putting the hard drive in the caddy yourself rather than simply buying it all done that way from the factory is because the hard drives that actually go in those things from the factory are generally enterprise hard drives that didn't meet the QA testing to go out as enterprise hard drives. So they wind up in these caddies where they face the most demanding possible environment that they weren't designed for to begin with, and like I said, frequently... They didn't pass QA. Now, the reason that I say that is because one of the most common complaints that you come up with from people who shuck drives is they talk about, like, really annoying whines coming from the drives when they shuck them and put them in their servers. Well, whines mean that those bearings are not in the best shape, which one would imagine is hopefully a QA problem because you do not normally expect brand new enterprise drives in a data center to have god-awful bearing wine. Now, they will be very loud, which again, even without the wine, is a common complaint about you know factory-made portable hard drives as they're quite loud. Well, it's because, again, data center drives, a little cheap shell, they're going to be noisy. However, if you just buy your own caddy and buy your own drive, you can get a good drive that was actually designed for NAS type use, which is around the right profile that we're looking for here, has not failed any QA checks and is not in any way a dodgy piece of gear. Now, you do still have the issue that when you're talking about a portable mechanical hard drive, you know, these are rotating devices with relatively flimsy internals. They do not appreciate being banged around. They don't like rapid thermal expansion and contraction. So, This is not going to be a good fit if you want like a thing that you're just constantly leaving in your backpack and, you know, bringing in and out of the, you know, the cold into the heat and the air conditioning and the blazing sun and all that. It's not going to live very long, even if you do your own thing with your own drive and caddy. If you need to subject it to a lot of mechanical and, you know, thermal stress, I would strongly advise you to instead buy your own solid state drive and put it in a caddy. That way you avoid all the issues with mechanical stuff and, you know, the vast majority of the thermals as well. Because you do buy your own caddy and your own separate drive, you also protect yourself from the case where you think you're going to be able to shuck a drive. But it turns out that the drive actually doesn't have a SATA port on it anywhere because the whole thing was ripped off and, you know, a special interface to the caddy was actually soldered onto the drive's board. I've seen that many times. That won't happen if you buy your own drive. The last thing I'll say here is make it a 2.5-inch SATA drive, not an NVMe. I know NVMe is the sexy hotness that everybody's all looking for, but you're on the wrong end of the USB interface. You're not going to see all that speed anyway. And above and beyond that, the other thing that NVMe M2 drives are very famous for is overheating. And you're going to be putting this thing in a little chassis with no airflow, active or
0: passive, and expecting it to work for a long period of time don't go NVMe. No, what you want to do is just buy one of those SanDisk Extreme USB drives. I hear they're pretty cheap at the moment. <sighs> You'll note which of the three hosts made that recommendation. <laughs> Respond accordingly. No, don't really. They're the ones that die and just, will not die, but just wipe your data randomly. And uh, did we speculate that that might be a heat issue? I don't think we did on air, but maybe off air. Either way, yeah, you want to avoid those. But yeah, kind of to Jim's
2: point, especially... There's a big difference between an external hard drive and a portable hard drive, even though they're kind of interchangeable if you want a three and a half inch hard drive that's going to sit on your desk and plug in over USB and maybe be able to move to another computer then yeah an enclosure in a big c8 nas drive is a great way to go if you want something you're going to carry around with your laptop in the bag or something, then you probably want something solid state that can handle getting bumped around but like Jim said, Nvme has heat issues and you're not going to get that performance because it's on the wrong end of USB anyway. Even if it's USB three slash C etc, you're better off with a regular SATA based SSD because it's going to not cook itself to the same degree. The last thing we
1: should probably address, although we're, we're kind of doing things in the reverse order, you know, should you be happier about Seagate or Western Digital right now? No, Western Digital is still very much in the toilet. They are. Still the subject of incoming class action lawsuits for various shady things they've done. Do not recommend in any way, shape, or form. If you want a Rust hard drive, I recommend Seagate Iron Wolf. Seagate has said all the right things for the last few years about the various fiascos that have hit the storage industry. They have gotten tarred in a couple of them to a degree themselves, but they've just never gotten in as deep <laughs> as the, uh, the, the other options. So that is very much who I'd recommend. And on the solid state side, your cheapest good option is usually going to be like, you know, a Samsung Evo or, you know, maybe a Samsung Pro if, if you're concerned about, you know, a lot of heavy write usage. Although if you're doing that, probably again, you know, going the, the over USB route is not going to be your friend anyway. The other option that I'll mention there, because it's not that much more expensive, you can get a proper data center drive with like Power loss protection and, you know, hardware QoS and all that good stuff from Kingston. Their former line was the DC 500. They had a DC 500 R and DC 500 M. That was sort of like the relationship between Samsung's Evos and Pros, the R's. Were for uh, you know a mostly read workload, so they didn't have as much write endurance as the uh, 600M. I'm sorry, the 500M. But those are again, that's a. There's still tons of those drives out there. That's not the current line. The current line is the DC 600M. For like a two terabyte drive, I, I looked it up recently, and you know the prices were only off by like, I think like forty bucks. You know between those and and the you know the the cheap consumer drives like Samsung Evos. And in my opinion, that's a great 40 bucks to spend.
0: You said Iron Wolf is a good way to go mm-hmm. if you're going to go the spinning Rust route. What about the Exos drives?
1: I don't recommend that consumers buy Exos drives because saying Exos drive doesn't mean anything. Exos is not a consumer brand. It does not actually associate anything that consumers think about In terms of differentiation, an Exos drive could be an archive drive. It could be a NAS drive. It could be a camera drive. You know, it could be just about anything, because if you're buying Exos, you have to read the whole freaking data sheet. And that's a bit much to expect consumers. And frankly, even, you know, most of our listeners to do, I don't want to read an entire data sheet (laughs) every time I'm buying a drive. But you really do have to do that if you're going for enterprise stuff. The other issue is, you know, even if you get the exact right exhaust for what you want, like the closest thing to a proper NAS drive in the exhaust line is going to be a data center drive. And one thing that data center drives absolutely do not care about is how much noise they make. But most people that are going to put a hard drive in their house, they definitely care about how noisy it is. So, yeah, stay away from exhaust, uh, stay away from Western Digital's equivalent Um God, what, they, what do they call theirs, Alan? Their enterprise line?
2: Uh, they stole the name from... Ultrastar. Yeah, they stole the name from uh, HGST. Yeah, if, if you're a consumer, stay
1: out of the exhaust and Ultrastar stuff. I promise you, there's, there's nothing good in there for you. It's going to cost you more money, and it's not going to be designed for you. And like I said, you're going to have to really read the data sheet to figure out what you're going to get. Just buy the brand that actually targets what you're trying to do from a manufacturer that you can trust
2: reasonably. Yeah, I've been basically nothing but Seagate for 20 years, and I've been very happy.
0: Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at Alan
1: Jude.
2: We'll see you next week.